Comedy comedians are underrated, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, look, it's a small yeah. sort of incestuous scene. Um, but those who do well out of it get a lot of corporate work and they make money. And yeah. I've got a problem with corporate work. I think corporate work like kills <laughs> comedy. <laughs> Is this a conversation there, by the way? Or I don't know. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. Just sit on that. So I don't yeah. ramble unnecessarily even intrude uh, on your time. Uh, well, I think, yeah. I think we started already, but that's yeah. the point. Um, yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, the reality is that corporations you know, actually pay. Sure. And if you look at corporations as patrons, as they were back in the days of Michelangelo with right. his Medici patrons, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You know, cor- corporations keep artists alive in this country. They honestly do. For everyone from actors to directors to stand-up comedians, they yeah, rely on the largesse of the corporations. And there's a heck of a lot of creativity that bubbles under the surface um, that you don't get to see because it's part of a kind of subculture of creativity. But no, thank goodness for the corporations. I mean, they're absolutely are vital. Well, there you go. You mm. just changed my mind now. See, <laughs> two minutes. Sure, that's, look, that's, that's all look, it takes. You know, I just can't imagine George Carlin doing a corporate gig. Yeah, that, absolutely. But he is unique. I mean, as a comedian, it's yeah. in the top ten ever. I mean, yeah. But there would have been times comedians. in his career when he would have been what Americans call a pitch man. Uh, you get you into the studio and you say something funny. I mean, one of the best pitchmen in the history of pitchmen is John Cleese, who, after Monty Python, and they made a lot of money, um, went into the advertising world and did some incredibly funny commercials that are actually, in their own right, f- as funny as Monty Python's sketches. Oh, right. Getting paid for them, but subversive at the same time. So kind of poking fun at consumerism and well, at products. Yeah. Absolutely, but, you know, he's John Cleese working for Compaq. So you can combine uh, working for brands, as you might call it, with uh, with keeping your creative integrity. Absolutely. So, yeah. is there anything that actually offends you, Gus? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm a Facebook friend of yours for the past three years or so, and you. I mean, with respect, I think you about my father's age. I don't know how old you are. I tell him about mm. Netflix. He will have no clue. <laughs> you are yeah. light years ahead of everyone else about what is good in yeah. popular culture, yeah. from the White House correspondence yeah. dinner to. I mean, I, I speak of a comedy show I watch. He's like, oh, and you say, yeah, I watched it two years ago. It was phenomenal. <laughs> like, how do you know these yeah. things? Well, look, okay. So, first, so first of all, it's, it's when you're a journalist. Uh, all journalists are generalists, so you have specialist right. journalists who specialize in certain fields. But that is a relic of the past. Uh, to be a journalist nowadays, you have to have a very broad general interest and general knowledge. And also, I think, you know, ever since my childhood, I've had this, like, there's now a term for it, you know, FOMO, you know. Right. So I've had this intense fear of, like, not being in on the conversation. So, like, people are talking about something. Sure. And it's like, you know, what are they talking about? And what's going on? And why don't I know about this? So that curiosity, that drive, is partly why I became a journalist. And then once you figure out what's going on, then you feel compelled to do the opposite, which is tell people. So you spread the word, you kind of evangelize. But um, journalists have to keep their pulse on the popular culture, not just because it's the popular culture, but because the way of the way the industry is changing. So if you aren't on social media, if you aren't au fait with what's happening in popular music, uh, popular TV, if you aren't interested in how trends are changing, the way people consume media, then it's going to be very difficult for you to be a journalist. Um, yeah. And and also there there is a strong driving impulse journalistically to know just a little bit more than everybody else. 
Yeah, if you can sense. know more, then you can share more. Right. So, it's, so look, it's, it's instinctive. I'm genuinely curious about the world. Um, but to answer your original question, I, you know, honestly, I'm shocked often <laughs> that there's a difference between shock and offense. So I'll often, I'll often, I'll say to myself, holy shit, when I'm yeah. going through something on social media or when I see something online or when I see a YouTube video, the latest was um, Childish Gambino's This Is America, oh, where yeah. I said, oh, wow. What a great video. Yeah, but in a good sense, I was sure. shocked by it and I meticulously analyzed, analyzed it to see what it meant. And um, But offended, no, I just, you know, I think... I think uh, if being offended is like a bit of a luxury, you know, it's like an indulgence. Yeah. It's I'm offended personally, <laughs> um, and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's an indulgence. Yeah, I mean, same here. I, 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 I don't say I can never get offended. I think yeah. some things will offend mm. me. Like I watched, have you ever, I mean, the most shocking film of all time is called A Serbian Film. <laughs> yeah. And it is, yeah. uh, I mean, and you know, you, you know about yeah, it. I, know I mean, about it's it. a True. horrific film. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I couldn't finish it because I was... Yeah. Shocked. Yeah. No, absolutely. Look, I think, uh, and, and there are several, there are several movies like that. And I have a curiosity where I might kind of watch a few minutes of it. But there, I'm kind of, I suppose, I'm not offended, but I just, I don't want to be party to the artist's vision to the extent that I have to watch the whole movie. Right. It's enough. Ten minutes, fifteen minutes, sometimes is enough to get what the artist is going on about. But they are deliberately setting out to provoke an offend, which is. A legitimate right of an artist, and absolutely, absolutely. Um, we've come from a an era where we weren't allowed to watch things in case they offended or shocked us. The term back in the apartheid days was undesirable, and the censor board determined what was undesirable and also what was not undesirable. Right. We can now determine for ourselves what is. Well, what now is they've undesirable. got the formal publications board for them. Yeah, right? yeah, no, absolutely. That is a relic of the apartheid era. There's absolutely no reason for it. Um, and they completely don't understand the way the modern world works, no. and uh, and they are concerned that we are going to be shocked and offended, and they want to protect us. That is the instinct of the censor. I mean, Lawrence Dahl wrote a poem about censors that starts, censors are dead men. Back in those days, they were all men. And uh, he says, you know, they are dead, and we shouldn't actually listen to them. We shouldn't let them influence our lives. We are living people. So I'm completely against censorship. At the same time, that doesn't mean that you have to subject yourselves to works of art that for one reason or another shock you. You don't have to. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you don't have the right to take it down either. Absolutely. Because it's shocking. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the spear was a great yeah. a great uh, example of that. You have two, yeah. two random people out of nowhere, an oldish white man and a young yeah. black chap, coming in to deface the spear because they both found it offensive. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that's coincidental. Yeah. Look, you know, we also live in an age when everyone's a critic. So everyone can voice their opinions as strongly as they want to. And uh, to some extent, defacing an artwork is a, is a form of criticism. But it is illegal to do that. It's vandalism. It causes all sorts of problems. But throughout the history of art, people have done that. And, oh, really? Uh, so you don't find it to be a form of censorship? Well, it's a, form of, it's a form of preventing other people from seeing that work because it shocks and offends you yes. to the extent. So, yeah, so it absolutely is censorship. But sometimes it's a it's a statement. I mean, okay. Marcel Duchamp, who was the, one of the key figures in in the French art scene in the early 1900s, he famously didn't actually do this physically, but he famously put a moustache on the Mona Lisa. It's one of his most famous works. And what he was saying is that the age of Da Vinci is over. And I was thinking that when watching This is America, 
that partly what this America is about, it's actually purposely destroying what has gone before. So when he shoots the guy sitting on the chair, yeah. he represents to me a blues man playing guitar. And when he shoots the gospel choir, that represents one of the roots of American music, is actually not physically committing murder. He's kind of making a break with the past. And this is what art needs to do. So people who want to break with the past in whatever way they want to, that is their right as artists. They, a, new, a new world starts from now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Jordan Peterson has this thing about the left wing versus the right wing, yeah. politically at least. But he says the left are very, very creative because they want to disable and destroy categories and borders yeah. between yeah. things. Yeah. Whereas the right likes categories and borders right. very much. Yeah. Uh, so they're both, they're both actually need each other to make sure that the categories aren't broken yeah. to such an extent. But that's progress still happens in a way. So you sort yeah. of need the two. Yeah. Well, and look, a lot of creative people are, are politically, yeah. I mean, they don't have to be political as such, but yeah. politically they would be left-wing. And that's why I love that there yeah. is a left, because without them, um, you know, creativity and progress and art and, I mean, movies, music yeah. would be far more dull, yeah. I would look, it's a, it's a it's a stereotype, you know, that, that most... Um, Comedy, most stand-up comedy, it comes from the left, mm. and uh, most groundbreaking art comes from the left. There aren't terribly many famous right-wing comics, but it's very easy to name dozens of left-wing sure. famous comics. And uh, journalistically speaking, most journalists are liberal-minded by nature, liberal to progressive. Um, there are certainly famous right-wing commentators, but very often in the journalistic field, uh, it's good to be a contrarian. So sometimes you take a viewpoint not necessarily because it's what you actually personally think right but it's in order to get a debate going it's useful to but, get uh, it, yeah. but yeah no, absolutely part of uh, Bertolt Brecht said you know art is a hammer it's not a mirror it's a hammer so sometimes you need to bash things down to to begin again and that's what music does reinvents itself that's what art does that's what cinema does um there's nothing wrong with it and when it happens new forms are invented but that moment yeah is always shocked like you know Stravinsky and he had his right of spring. It was literally a riot. Yeah. People threw things. They stormed out of the, out of the, the, was, the concert hall. The Vienna Theatre. It was in Paris. In yeah, Paris. Sorry. Yeah, but there so was like a full on riot. When yeah, no, it was, yeah, no, he, yeah. He, the, the the way he changed the form actually gave birth to modern music. Picasso, likewise, and people were shocked, mortified, offended. They stormed out. We now accept it as a piece of classical music. Mm. But so we are. If we are offended, shocked, horrified by things, creative things, it's actually good because it means a new form is being born. So it's not new. It's part of a cycle of destruction and rebirth that is crucial to art. It has to happen. <laughs> and, so, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. It's taken me a very long time to not have a moralistic view yeah. on these things. And, I mean, your Facebook page helped a lot. Yeah. And just speaking to people who are artists and creators and all that yeah. helped a lot because I'm a... I'm not a traditional person per se, yeah. but I like things that work and uh, yeah. take things slowly. Uh, yeah. I'm not a fan of revolutionaries yeah. uh, politically or otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> unless, no, it's, unless it's social media or tech yeah, that helps right. us. Um, but speaking to creative people, yeah. we can never agree on things, but I'm, I'm, yeah. as I said before, I'm really happy that they're around. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you speak about art movements because art moves. You know, it's not static. If it's static, then, then it dies. And and that, to answer your earlier question, that's why it's so important to know what is happening. There's actually nothing worse than a movement that is breaking out and you kind of are immune to it. 
either because you're not interested, which which is fine, sure. but at the same time, um, discovering only years later that the revolution happened and bypassed you is like that scary. <laughs> we do live in, in an age of continuous revolutions. I mean, like everything, everything. I mean, it'll only be in decades, generations to come that we can look, we'll be able to look back and say what a revolution Twitter was, for instance. At, sure. at the moment, we're just using it as just a platform. But it's completely revolutionary because it is destroying other forms of media. And it's destroying them slowly. It's like not, there's not a huge big sledgehammer that destroys conventional media. But it's happening, and particularly in this country. I mean, if you want to be depressed, you know, as a journalist, just read the annual ABC figures and just see them plunging and plunging. And, and then, you know, no one seems to, like, say, well, why is this happening? It's just accepted. Yeah. But it's the destruction of well, one form well, by yesterday, new one. Well, E-Media, which owns EMCA, lost 1.6 billion rand, you know, yeah. in the past financial year. Yeah. SABC. Yeah. Uh, new, um, circulation for newspapers all the way down as well. Yeah. Um, but these people, not these people, these institutions have lifelines, right? But it's yeah. it's tradition. We're supposed to have, like, real paper. And yeah. People will like that. And yeah. they really... Don't I mean they really yeah. really don't? Yeah, you know. Look, I mean, you know, when I go to the Mug and Bean or in the coffee shop uh, um, in general, uh, and there's a paper there, I actually enjoy taking the paper and reading a broadsheet paper. For the rest of the time, I do not miss broadsheet tabloids. I don't really miss print at all. No, I think digital yeah. is doing what yeah. the car did to the horse carriage. Yeah, it makes paper a luxury. So yeah. you choose to partake in reading a paper. Yeah. So make the paper look damn good. You yeah. Know, make it. Uh, I don't know. Make it out of linen. I don't yeah. Know, whatever. But, uh, some fiber. But you know, there's 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 arguments. You know, is it is it better to read a physical book or an e-book? Uh, complete nonsense. Who cares what form you're reading it in? It's like asking. You know, maybe we should go back to the days of reading books on parchment and on stone. You know, because <laughs> what happened to the poor stonemasons who had to chip out the letters? Yes. And what happened to the poor artists who had to? You know, all of these things fade. As long as you are reading, that's important. It doesn't matter. I read, I read on my phone more than on any other medium. Same here. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely enough. I can read a book, and then I can read another book. I can read multiple books, like almost, uh, almost uh, in parallel with each other. Um, I don't need to haul a whole bunch of paper books around with me. And that's and that's fantastic. There's no point in worrying about what the medium is as long as you're reading. Well, I just yeah. use uh, Kindle for for fiction mm. and books that are easier to read yeah. but if I, I like making notes in my books I like yeah. my books to be really used yeah. to look like it's been yeah. used so yeah. especially for non-fiction if I'm reading about yeah. ideas or psychology or philosophy or history yeah. I always I try to buy the, the paperback or the hardback to make yeah. notes in it and it's I like the look on the shelf that's right yeah. but of course that. you can do that just as easily with the uh, with, uh, I use uh, the iPhone's uh, EPUB format and it's great to be able to simply highlight a passage send it to yourself um, make notes, you know, that instinct of scrolling in a book, I've never been able to do that oh, because really? I, my father was a librarian and I uh, grew up with sanct- books being sacred. Sanct- yeah, so book. to me, to this day, if I pick up a paper book and it's got scrollings in it, I have like a moment of like revulsion. It's like, you know, you shouldn't do that. This is a book, it's sacred. So for me, that's another reason why I like ebooks so much. You know? well, I mean, I hunt for second-hand books that have yeah. scrollings in them, <laughs> especially especially at the front where it's two yeah. X, Y, and Z, and the dates. Like the dates yeah. are so important. Oh, sure, they, this, this was a you know a gift yeah. by someone to someone they they care about in 1983, yeah. and yeah. I've got it. Now those are pieces of history, absolutely. Yeah, they, I found they, quite they're archaeologically significant. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're talking about creativity yeah. and uh, censorship more predominantly. Before the state was the boogeyman for, yeah. for censorship, you you know you had to make sure that they don't 
creep in and, and step on your ability to express yourself. Yeah. However, I think I hope we agree yeah. that people tend to self sense these days. There's a, there's a, a common ideology or narrative or script yeah. that one has to be part of. Yeah, well, you see, self censorship. And, and if you deviate, uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, you get hounded. You know, look, there's a the, the self censorship actually is pretty much the same as editing. And if we didn't live in an edited world, we would be completely overwhelmed. I mean, sure. just from a sensory point of view, you know, there is such a thing as, as too much information and uh, information anxiety. So a big part of the job of journalists in particular is actually to edit the world for us. And in the process, of course, you self-censored, because if you didn't, you would have a, a rambling stream of consciousness. I mean, thank goodness we edit. If we If we lived in a world where people had unfettered ability to to kind of spread their thoughts out in words or in, in another form, it would be crazy. No one would be able to handle it. So self-censorship is where is where you cross the line from simply editing to being concerned that your views might hurt, horrify, offend people. Um, and also you definitely self-censor with the corporate world in mind, absolutely. So yeah. if you work for a newspaper or a magazine – you have very strict rules that you have to obey. In, in the world of journalism, it's called house style. So the rules are incredibly strict even as to how you spell things. And, you know, like, I've had so many arguments, and it's pathetic that the, you have arguments about these things. But to me, internet should be spelled with a capital I. House style says it must be spelled with a small I. So every time I have to spell internet with a small I, a small piece of me thinks, oh, no, this is terrible, I shouldn't do this. So, so editing happens every time something is produced. Self-censorship is where you are concerned that your that your views won't fit in with the voice of the of the paper. Hence, you're not going to find extreme right-wing views in the Man and Guardian. It's just sure. not going to happen. No, of course. Um, but the Man and Guardian might occasionally, for balance, carry a piece, a right-of-reply piece, or they might ask someone to contribute to a base from the right-wing. But if you work for the Man and Guardian, it's your understanding that it's a progressive paper. So, yeah, so you would... Inherently, no, absolutely self-censor, and and, um, and uh, for someone like the Man and Guardian yeah. or Huffington Post, for example, yeah. I mean, you would know if uh, you're doing well by what people actually say about your article. Yeah, look, sometimes provocation is part of what the media is supposed to do. So very often, a piece will be deliberately designed to provoke, and you you have to be cynical about it, and you have to think this is a clickbait is the term that's commonly used. But you have to know what is authentic and genuine and what is actually just designed to get a rise out of people. Um, and there's definitely um, room for that. Good columnists, for instance, do need to provoke. Right. The fact that they might not actually 100% hold those views or might later on distance themselves from them, that's all part of the game of, of entertainment. Sure, and, and that was yeah. the essence of David Bullard's column, Out to Lunch, um, <laughs> which, was, which was extremely... Well, offensive for, for most people at the time, yeah. but uh, the highest readership, uh, most read column, I believe. Yeah. Well, that's what he says. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, <laughs> he absolutely. To, yeah. He likes to uh, toot his own horn. He's a good friend. We get yeah. on very well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one column comes out that was in line with the others yeah. of 20 years beforehand, yeah. and then one column comes out and it's all yeah. over. Yeah, look, anybody who works for any publication is there at the largesse of the editor. The publishers are not actually that important. But the editor can decide whether you deserve a column, and the editor can decide to pull your column at any moment. And sure. this is why, I mean, newspapers are not by any remote means democracies. They're not collectives. 
In fact, it would be you know it would just be horrendous if if there if there wasn't such a thing as an editor with a firm stamp on the paper who says, "I'm sorry, we're not going to run this cartoon." Or, "I'm sorry, we're not going to run this column." Sure. We live in a world where that actually doesn't matter anymore. It's like, "All right, I'm sorry you feel like that, which is okay if I put my column out on social media." Go ahead. Yeah. So there are platforms now. The uh, mainstream media doesn't run the media anymore, mm. and. Uh, there's no point arguing with an editor's prerogative. Sure, you can argue with an editor, and in fact, you actually should. Sure. But if an editor chooses, for one reason or another, not to run something, you're not yeah. being bullied by a tyrant. I have not said that's their prerogative. Either, right? yeah. No, I don't actually think it's censorship. I think no. it's. I think it's very often is understanding an audience. But what happens yeah. if an editor does run something and gets a lot of blowback, and then yeah. cancels the column, which is what happened to David Bullard, for example? I mean, that is. Yeah. I would think the editor should be in command of that situation yeah. and take responsibility. Yeah. Look, it's the, their choice to yeah. run the column. Sure. I mean, you know, the reality the reality is that that uh, uh, newspapers in particular are such high-pressure environments that with the best will in the world, you might not read every word that goes into print. So there's a huge amount of trust that people know their briefs and that they know where the line is and that they can cross it. But if they do cross it, that they might be consequences and arguments and news, newsrooms are very vibrant places they're very discursive and discursive places but um once again you know that that is, that is if the editor does that you can scream and rant and rave about it but you work you work under the editor's largesse i mean it's been tried over the years we have democratic systems where everyone's got to say and and newspapers are run as collectives and so on but those papers tend to be very dull the, oh, really? the best papers are those where the editor has a very firm stamp and um, it, the political viewpoint might not be 100% what the editor's viewpoint is and the, the paper will accommodate lots of viewpoints. But when the crunch comes and the editor says, you're fired. <laughs> For a lot of journalists, being fired is like it's almost like getting a little kind of award. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, okay. often um, you put in your CV, you know. Fired by the Sunday Express, fired by the Sunday Times, and then you go on to other things. These days, start a blog, post on Facebook, post on Twitter. You know, don't complain that you're being censored. I yeah. can't understand this mentality where you have to be so concerned that your work has to appear in one publication and be given the stamp of approval by that. Go elsewhere. You know, stand on the street corner, reading out your work. Sure. Yeah. There's sure. there's so many platforms that it no longer makes any sense to complain. Yeah. Oh, do you think people under underestimate how much freedom they actually have to express their views? Well, I think we. I think look, we're, we're only what uh, since 1994, and that's not many years. Was no, it? it's 24. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good. So it's it's uh, it's so recent that we are still we are still battling to to grasp this freedom, and that's why. That's why that's why we have you know Twitter wars that break out, and that's why the the mainstream media are so fascinated with Twitter because there's so much more freedom on Twitter than there is in the mainstream media, and very often all the mainstream media will do is report on what Twitter is saying. So they, they outsource the debate to Twitter, but um, while while there is enormous freedom, there is also enormous vigilance over that freedom. So sure, you can say what you want. But we have very we have very strict hate speech laws, and and uh, there have been consequences. As Vicky Momberg discovered, you can't simply say what you want to. Um, you have to work within the parameters of what's socially acceptable. But um, the diversity of debate on social media is huge, and also 
the attention deficit disorder. So today there's a massive debate and people are being being sure. engaged in huge argument. Tomorrow it's forgotten about. Um, that to me is is the real freedom that you can that you can voice what your opinions may be on social media. You can argue, you can engage, you can shout, you can yell, and then the next day. Do you think it enhances yeah. democracy? Because there's a lot of, if I may say, journalists. Yeah. Uh, I watched a, a monk debate uh, yeah. last week between Jordan Peterson, Michelle Goldberg, Stephen Fry. Quite yeah. a good debate. Yeah. And Michelle Goldberg who is a journalist. Try to make the claim that you know social media is actually terrible for democracy. And I thought that was a very strange argument yeah. to make from a journalist. I think it enhances it dramatically. Yeah. I've, I've learned so much more of what yeah. people think from, I mean, from Twitter. Twitter yeah. has been the greatest revelation in my mind. Yeah. I think that's a, to change my views. Yeah, that is scary. That is because scary. if you follow that argument to this logical conclusion and you say, what are you actually saying when you say social media is dangerous for democracy? What's the next step? Let's control or let's ban social media. Yeah. So democracy either embraces all viewpoints or it doesn't. So, you know, social media is actually brilliant for democracy. Social media is democracy. Social media is the 21st century realization of what the ancient Greeks were hoping to do. In the days before, you know, um, uh, people were allowed to voice their opinions in the in the Senate. But the idea was that you would discuss and debate things. And that's what, those, are the, those were the, the, the seeds of, of modern Western democracy. But in African society as well, the idea sure. is that no matter who you are, You've got a, a voice, you can talk, you can argue within a very strict social platform, though. Um, so, the, so the idea of this kind of social, we call it social media, sure, but in fact, it's just media, right? and it's just social. There's nothing original or unique about the idea of people gathering around to talk to each other. Um, that's the basis of society, social, equal society. We're still in a bit of a flirtation phase with it because it's so relatively new. To fa Facebook, 2004, only 14 yeah. years old. Twitter goes back to 2007. So we're still, like, in, in a sense, pondering. However, younger people, so-called digital natives born in the mid-1990s, and this is a big part of the research that I do, um, they don't use the term social media. It's an alien term to them. It, to them, it, they don't even use the term media. It's really? ambience. It's an app. It's just the air. Okay. Yeah, it's it's as normal and as all-embracing as the air. So if you, I'm speaking here just based on on what I'm doing for research, which is looking at the way millennials and boomers consume media, millennials are confused when you say to them, what news media do you consume? No they don't thing. think of it. Yeah, it's just like, and I think we should all think like that. We shouldn't think in segmented forms as in, oh, well, I read this paper, and I go to Twitter, and then I go to Facebook. It's just, it's all in the air, and you actually can't escape it. So, like, whether or not you're interested remotely in the royal wedding, mm. whether or not you're remotely interested in the land issue, it'll filter its way into your brain just because these are particles in the air. Um, and that, to me, is exactly what democracy is. So, social media is fantastic. Any, you know, hear people talk about the downside of it, the dark side of it, but I'm absolutely utopian when it comes to social media. I really? Think yeah. It's one of the it's one of the greatest inventions ever in the history of humankind. The the internet, firstly, the internet sure. internet is now like the the pyramids of Giza. You know, that's how yes. important it is to our understanding of the world. And then social media is like an offshoot of that. But absolutely, the social media and internet are right up there with the moon landing, with Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, as brilliant examples of 
first heart transplant, you know, innovation that changes the way you see the world. So um, any attempt to lessen the role of social media and any attempt to say that it's not democratic, you know, your democratic right also is not to participate in it all. Absolutely. And you find this a lot on social media where people feel the need to say, I've had enough. And I'm pulling out. Yeah. Stephen Fry famously did it. He did. Who cares? Bye-bye. <laughs> there's no contract. You're not right. on a contract basis. You don't have to resign. You don't have to give a month's notice. You don't need to let us know. Quite honestly, if you leave social media and you're gone, very few people will actually miss you, sadly, because there are, there's so much else to fill the space. But people feel the need to make a moral statement about it as, I'm quitting Facebook, I'm quitting Twitter, I'm yeah. quitting Instagram. I'm taking more time to find me and yeah. what's really important. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Reading other people's thoughts every day is really important <laughs> to me. Yeah. I, don't, I don't make that statement yeah. every day. Yeah. Um, See, I'm not like to go on Twitter. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm doing this because it's important. Actually, no, I just do it because it's part of life. Yeah. I'm far less interested in people's opinions than I am in their stories. Yeah, so right, I'm, right. Yeah, I'm, you know, there's like opinion is like the ultimate commodity on social media and everyone's got multiple opinions. Indeed. They mean far less to me than people's stories. I want to know, like, what Twitter, what Facebook says is what's on your mind. What Twitter says is what's happening. Mm. I'd far rather know what's happening in your world than what's on your mind. Yeah, because you know, democracy is fantastic and you can voice your opinion, but it's far less interesting to me than what you did today and what crazy things happen in your world. That's what I'm interested in. Okay, so, I mean, mm. do, you, I mean do you watch YouTube vlogs? Uh, I do occasionally, but only if they are the ones that I do watch. I tend to watch for very specific reasons. For instance, they'll be tech blogs. All right. So if I want to buy a phone, I watch a lot of YouTube vloggers, as they call, right. to see what they have to say. Because I mean, that's what they do. I mean, do, yeah. do you know a, a chap called Casey Neistat? Yes, he's, no, he's well my son's idol. Right. My son's a, he's twenty, and he wants to be Casey. He yeah. has made <laughs> the mundane yeah. entertaining. Mm. Because he's got okay, he's got a cool. He lives in New York City. He's got a cool, yeah. um, like a um, electric skateboard, yeah, electric that's right. things. And every day he does. I don't know what he does for work. He's creating like a collaborative yeah. YouTube space in. Yeah. But it's ten minutes uh, video on YouTube, and it is yeah. one of the most entertaining yeah. pieces of content you can watch yeah, no, every my day. My son showed me a lot of them, and he's and he's very good. And effectively, he simply is a twenty first century broadcaster with well, his own a, channel. He's a, he's a filmmaker. Yeah. He's yeah. a filmmaker, but he, he makes the mundane entertaining. He That's goes to right. buy a juice yeah. at whatever shop, yeah. and it's it's different takes. It's camera That's angles. Right. It's, it's rewind, speed up. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. There's some very good ones in in South Africa as well. There's a there's a you know there's a whole there's, there's a whole genre of people who actually make a living from um, having a platform on YouTube. It's great. The only thing that I don't really like about it is it requires much more commitment. It does. Yeah, so you have to commit yourself to watching. Even if it's three minutes, it's usually much longer than that. But social media, I can read as a stream, and I can pick out keywords, and it flows. I like the flow of it. Okay. So my preference is for the written, printed social networks, the word, the verbal ones. Yeah, because yeah. back to democracy and social media, I think it enhances it greatly. Cause yeah. I, have, I have no greater, well, I, got more great, I have greater pleasures, but I have great pleasure in calling out political leaders for being for saying yeah. silly statements online. Yeah. I think it's a it's a great democratic act That's on right. my part, even though I'm not a Democrat yeah. technically speaking. Yeah. I think it's great to do that. Yeah. No, it's it, a it, form it, of a, oh, you can you can put it on the on the table if you want to. Okay. It's it's basically it's like it's a form of heckling that was previously denied to us. So Parliament is like um meant for the people and anyone theoretically and in practice can go into Parliament and 
and uh, and you're not really meant to heckle. That that sure. exceeds the bounds of decorum. But on social media, you surely should use that freedom you have to call politicians to account, to job them, to insult them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, Send and, them memes. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And once again, within the bounds of like just acceptable, I think it's important to define acceptable behavior. I mean, if you simply sure. are using social media to simply swear at politicians, how are you adding to the no, debate? Yeah. No, not at all. If you make them uncomfortable, if you, if you have – look, the best debates on Twitter, the ones I like the best, are those where, where people, they don't necessarily find common ground – but they find a sort of mutual respect well, for the other's at least views. They try to understand yeah. each other's views. Yeah. yeah, that's that's rare. But I mean, my views have changed dramatically on Twitter that's right. by people just saying, you know, you're wrong in this instance. Yeah, and then, and then I meet those people in real life. That's what I use Twitter for, actually. Yeah, I joust, and then you meet them right. in real life, and then you made a friend. Yeah, or, no, look, or, even in even up even our political arena, which is highly antagonistic. People actually get on with each other very well. I know. So it's, yeah, it's, so it's across the act. across the across the benches. After that, you know, I think one of the great saving graces of South Africa is that people can stand together around a bra with clip drift and, uh, and a beer and so on and can talk to each other. Um, if we didn't have that, we'd be in real trouble. So on a social level, people do relate to each other. Uh, on an ideological level, they it's a complete opposite. They, they butt heads, but that's what democracy that's is. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what people, I think, maybe struggle with, mm. in essence, because... I want democracy to be polarizing, antagonistic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, distressing. Yeah, that's the price of freedom. I mean, yeah. that's the price you pay for living in a free society. Yeah, and I don't want to sanitize freedom like Singapore. Yeah, you know, where you're not allowed to, you know, okay, that's right. It's accent speaking, but in Singapore, yeah. you're not allowed to proselytize about your faith in public, for example, that's right. because that creates tension. Yeah, well, even on our own continent, you know, in in Rwanda, for instance, you know, you can't openly criticize or insult. The, the president. I mean, right. the journalists get into huge trouble, um, and uh, and many have even died in the, in the process. So the freedom we have to openly insult our president, and this came to the fore last year with uh, with the anti Zuma marches. I mean, those were fantastic. From whatever side of the spectrum you came, mm. that that is not to be underestimated. You, know, no. you can carry a poster in your hand that openly insults. The president of the country. Fantastic. No, the posters were, are the best thing about the marches. <laughs> so even in the women's march. Okay, the women's march yeah. wasn't that great in terms of posters. Yeah, yeah. But if any protest, yeah. <coughs> excuse me, with placards, yeah. the creativity just shines through. That's right. And that's what... I, I, also, I started yeah. sound utopian like you guys. Yeah. But uh, the amount yeah. of creativity people have, yeah. generally speaking, always blows me away because I'm not yeah. a very creative person in that regard. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah. A, a small act by someone who's a protester with a placard, and and, you yeah. find, and it's hilarious. Yeah. The but that's another reason why social media fantastic. are so important because they allow people to think creatively. So, like Twitter encourages you to think in two hundred eighty character bytes, mm. and as soon as you have to do that, you have to actually really think about the way you think, and um, it's a very different way of communicating than we've been used to previously in history. And as a result, people come up with very creative ways of using these networks. So every time that there are any concerns about social media as as being any sort of threat to democracy, which is ludicrous, it's completely the opposite. It actually fulfills the promise of democracy. But any time that happens and you and you feel overwhelmed by the, let's call it the, the ugliness of social media, you know, simply turn to people who are doing amazing things on social media. Sure. Turn to people who are who are using social media as art platforms. 
Look at what's happening on YouTube. Um, look at these. Look at bands who before wouldn't have had a hope in hell of getting their music even opened on the desk of a of an A and R man in a in a record company are now actually making careers on YouTube. That is fantastic. Yeah, so, unfortunately, it's Justin Bieber, but that's <laughs> the price we pay, right? Yeah, but you know, also, the world we live in, where n- nothing's a secret anymore. You know, I used to be a music critic on the Sunday Times, and there was an elite. So you would be part of the music elite in the sense that you would get an early listen to a new album that everyone was going to be talking about in three months down the line. That elite doesn't exist anymore. As soon as something is released, it's oxygen. So I can read about a piece of music that may not remotely be in my taste, but within a minute I can be listening to it on Spotify. Exactly. Yeah, so so nothing is secret, nothing is underground. There's no such thing as an underground anymore. Every, In fact, yeah. to even talk about a mainstream is very misleading because everything is now mainstream, and sure. the mainstream is the internet. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's why, uh, well, just going back to like democratic accountability Michelle Wolf yeah at the White House Correspondents Dinner yeah listeners if you haven't seen it just go watch that <laughs> first and then come back because it was it was it was fantastic yeah. she stood up and she gave everyone in the room a big middle finger <laughs> uh, Republican Democrat journalist yeah. anyone who was there who felt a little bit self-imported yeah she just gave them the finger so she it was almost like bringing Someone who heckles you on Twitter onto a stage yeah. and giving you the mic That's right. That's and all right. the attention. Yeah, and you, was, and you thought, sorry, to yeah. interrupt. And you said she, you know, she's your new comedic hero. <laughs> yeah. But it was a very controversial mm. at the time that she's, oh, you know, she's uh, saying these bad things about these politicians. Yeah, that, that is that is the point. Yeah. That's yeah. the essence I, of having her. Yeah, I certainly found sections of what she did not to be shocking because they were shocking, but because they were they were so risky that they were destined to fail. So a stand-up comedian who can do that, it, it takes courage. It takes courage to fail completely and to for your jokes not to land at all. And then you go into the next one. Um, so I think, but I think what she did very cleverly was she that that she knew that her real audience was outside the room. Indeed. So she wasn't actually doing her gig there for the White House correspondents and for the for the officials and for the ex- ex- members of the White House elite. She was actually doing it for the mass audience. And the audience is massive. It starts as small. It starts as people who know who she is, who are interested in stand-up comedy, who know what the White House Correspondents Dinner is. And like within hours, the audience is the world. Mm. So that, once again, is part of the, the creativity of this medium. What amazed me about that Michelle Wolf thing is how many people watched it entirely in order to be shocked and offended by it. If you are <laughs> shocked and offended by something, stop watching. Yeah, you know, use your you know, disgust is a very strong human impulse, and it's there for very important reasons. If we didn't have the impulse of disgust, we wouldn't survive as babies, sure. because we would just eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> so that impulse aesthetically lingers in our reaction to things. If you're disgusted by a work of art, stop watching. Your instinct is telling you to stop. Don't feel that you have a, a duty of some kind to watch it. You know, Just stop. And then go away and don't and don't tell other people that they can't watch or that it's offensive and shocking. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, do you find that not not offensive to you, but you find it offensive that other people find art or creativity no, so offensive? What, so, yeah. So okay. So no, the one thing I do find offensive yeah. is people who try and have art banned or moderated or removed from public view or changed in order to um, uh, fit in better with people's sensibilities. That's offensive. Yeah, they right. have absolutely no right to do that. A gallery has a right to display or not display an artwork. 
that's fine. They they private spaces or even if they're public spaces. But people who wander off in in from the street and see an artwork and are disgusted by it and then attempt to have that artwork removed, they are offensive. Yeah. No, that that's not their right. They must walk out of the gallery, they must write a letter of complaint, they must post on social media, but their interaction must stop at the level where they interfere with other people's rights to... Or just, or just mock it, for goodness sake. Yeah, absolutely. And mockery is, is, yeah. is the best use of offense. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But, but, you know, whether you... And, of course, as soon as you start mocking, then people get offended by by the levels of, of satire. And there's always there's always like, yes, but you can't cross the line. You know, the line is here. But who draws the line? Only well, the, the artists the, draw the, the line. The arbiters yeah. of this moral... <laughs> Morass called society draw the uh, they're the line drawers yeah and and they assume they're speaking on behalf of yeah. many millions of people and they're really not because yeah. no one knows who they are that's right and yeah. and b morality is completely subjective so yeah. but that is the fantastic thing about society that they actually don't matter anymore no, so so you can have arbiters whether they are, are legislative arbiters or or moralistic or creative arbiters and you can actually completely ignore them because of the fantastic democratic nature of the internet so as long as you have access to the internet it's, it is you know without overstating it it is as important as any other human right you can't have a working progressive society that will thrive and prosper without access to internet and broadband internet yeah, um, absolutely yeah. I, made the, I made the argument yeah. it's a human right thing quite a, yeah. a few years ago I think it was Norway did it like in 2004 that's right or something, and I thought that's a stupid idea. Yeah. And then the more you think about it, the more it makes sense, obviously. Yeah. But is there anything? Are there any downsides to your position? What like, does uh, to like uh, information, um, creativity, the internet being human right? Yeah. I mean, there are downsides. Yeah, right? I would say the I would say the big downside is the tendency to lose focus. Actually, so the downside for me isn't political or moral or anything like that. It is, and I find it a lot. So, for instance. Back in the 80s when I used to buy a vinyl album and very carefully take it out of its sleeve and listen to it for days and days and like almost fall in love with it, have a relationship with it, that focus has gone now um, because, you know, if it doesn't grab you instantly, you're unlikely to go back. Uh, so the, the downside of like free information in all its forms is that you lose some of the aesthetic luxury of having a relationship with with information and with art. So like you know, I can read an entire issue of the New York Times in like half an hour <laughs> by skimming headlines right. and by cherry picking what I want to read versus the days when you would take half the day to read the yeah, Sunday yeah. Times uh yeah, or the New York the New York Times on a Sunday. So yeah, so the downside to me isn't in any way a concern about what people are saying, etc. etc. Um Quite the opposite. Uh, to me, that's all upside. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If 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 people, you know, like I honestly, I cannot, I cannot recall one point where I thought, you know, I've got to leave Twitter. This is getting too much. Or, or I, I can't stand this Facebook anymore. You know, people are saying such ugly things. You know, use your freedom, yeah, you know, to to censor. In in other words, uh, block, mute, uh, unfriend, do whatever you need to to take those viewpoints out of your stream. Like, if you think of it as a stream, they're like, they're like little logs that get in the way and you trip over them and, and they impede the free flow of information. You know, you exercise your own right to remove them from your stream. And you, you personally, and this, once again, this is a word that everyone uses these days, you personally curate your right. level of engagement with the world. 
but then but you can't take your own personal curation and apply it to other people uh, you, sure. you absolutely can't you must openly criticize people where they are in some way uh interfering with the free flow of democracy themselves and you must engage vividly and vibrantly and openly with people but it, it must stop at the point where you say we can't listen to this viewpoint anymore and you have to leave. Sorry, <laughs> like kicking someone out of the room so you can't be here talking. Yeah, social media, there's no such thing. Yeah, Twitter can, if they want to, they've done this a couple of times, they can like suspend your account for sure. Mm. And there are often good reasons for that. And open threats of violence, open hate speech, uh, absolutely. I don't, I don't see anything wrong there with people having their account suspended temporarily until they come to their kind of senses and enter the debate again in in, in a correct way, because there are correct ways. But oh, so you think there is a correct way of well, well, yeah. So the so the correct way is engage with people, don't descend immediately to ad hominem attacks because they just uglify social media. They can be amusing and entertaining sometimes. You know, there's such a thing as amusing ad hominem attacks. But if that is all you have to offer on the social networks, if all you have to ever offer is is um, attacking people and swearing at them. You're not really contributing to the furtherance of Well, I don't know. I debate. actually disagree. So when David Cameron was prime minister, he had a Twitter account. Yeah. And used to, I think he used to tweet himself. Yeah. And the responses were just <laughs> glorious, especially after the, the pig scenario in that book. I mean, it was just a stream of abuse. Yeah. But the most... Hilarious, humorous yeah. abuse. I've, you see, that's I've, that's I've di- ever that's seen. different. That is the the so the English character is that you loathe your politicians, whoever they may be, and uh, and the English character and they don't have this constitutionally, but they have always had this very strong feeling of of the of the the serfs, you know, the peasants being able to speak out against the king, and that lingers on social media, and it often is very funny. But so wit is very important. If you can say something with a degree of not necessarily make people laugh, but just intelligence and humor combined, you're contributing to the furtherance of uh, of democracy because your what you're saying is of use to people. It makes them laugh. It makes them think. But out and out outright abuse, I don't think it really achieves anything. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I certainly wouldn't suggest that such people aren't allowed to. Be abusive on social media. But it doesn't serve a, a, a real yeah, purpose. No, no. It's dull. It's like it's like a hammering yeah. against the wall. Thud, thud, thud. You know, as opposed so to. So, are you traditionalist in any sense? I mean, do you have views about how modern journalism is, as opposed to? Oh yeah, no. How it was in the eighties. I mean, do you, do you yeah. think there's a, a claim you can make that today's better than last uh, than than in the eighties, yeah. for example? Can you make that claim? Do, oh, yeah. do you argue about oh, that, all the time. Or, do you, or do you just see it as a yeah. a progression that yeah. can't? controlled by anyone or anything so you just accept it for what it is now well see one great thing about social media as well is that it splinters into little subgroups of special interest groups that are sort of more or less private and on facebook i belong to a bunch of journalist groups some of them are are specifically for journalists from the 80s (coughs) 90s early 2000s and the level of of uh, of head shaking there and and regret at the decline of the profession is huge and very often with very good reason i mean in the space of the past few weeks, we've had so many incidents of journalists like getting it completely wrong yeah. and journalists using social media as their primary source and uh, journalists not checking facts. Those things go against the entire foundations of what the profession is meant to be. And one of and one of the foundations is accuracy mm. uh, and fairness and so on. So when that happens, it's kind of embarrassing um, and it's very bad. 
so traditionally, yeah, absolutely. If journalism has to achieve anything, it has to be like a monument to those things: accuracy, fairness, um, uh, diversity in its coverage. As soon as those foundations start crumbling, yeah, journalism, journalism is probably at its. It's funny. It's like at one of its lowest ebbs when it comes to public trust. But in terms of innovation and uh, and the use of media and the possibilities for the use of media, it's it's one of the most exciting periods in the history of journalism. Yeah, and, and it's a, that's mm. a funny um, paradox in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Because, believe it or not, I want journalism to be good. Yeah. Like, I want to know that what I read is accurate to, yeah. to a degree that is acceptable, whatever that acceptability rate is, 90% yeah. or whatever the case might be. Yeah. But if you have a piece, I think people do make a mistake between editorial and reporting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's reporting and then there's all these words. Do you know a company called The Knife Media? Yes, uh, they're actually very good. Right. Yeah. And they and they show yeah. the article and they say all these words are trying to imprint ideas yeah. into your mind about what That's the right. author thinks about this particular yeah. subject. And yeah. it's fascinating to see what words are used That's right. to create a picture for you. Yeah. Um, when when it's supposed to be well, it's supposed to be a, a factual reporting yeah. of what actually happened. Donald yeah. Trump walked to the podium, said these words yes. in quotes, left the podium. Yeah. But now he swaggered yeah, up to the building and yeah. he's whatever yeah. he slammed yeah. his fist into the podium. Meanwhile, he just probably just touched it. Yeah. And yeah. all these all these words just create an impression in your mind. Yeah. So no, absolutely. That 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 often comes from the the the. the uh, unhidden uh, political viewpoint of the paper. New York Times is openly Democrat and liberal, so is the Washington Post. Uh, the Daily Mail in the UK is openly right-wing and yeah. anti-immigration and so on and so forth. So you understand where it comes from and you do understand. But I think this is why it's important. I can't bring myself to read the Daily Mail. I find it very difficult. Um, but uh, but it's very important to have a very diverse range of media that you consume. And to be highly skeptical at the same time, to to know that the um, political leaning of the paper is going to be reflected in in the reports, and then to make your own mind up. Well, that's why ANN Seven was such mm. a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a fresh air because almost everything ANN Seven did was like completely wrong. Like they hired they hired models from a model agency as newsreaders. Right. Uh, in other words, they pretty much like stood. They trampled on the notion of professionalism in journalism and from the day that they started everything just went hilariously wrong right so well, and just in terms of bias yeah i think they were like quite forthright with their bias yeah not in terms of saying yes we are actually you know pro the zoom, yeah. zoom faction or whatever yeah. but just the way they spoke about things it yeah. was they just did a bad job of hiding their bias yeah essentially but also but also you know they no respected Credible commentator would appear on an ANN Seven panel, so they had to scrap the barrel like the sort of bargain bin books. Um, they had to get people who who were like to put it mildly dubious. And I'm only going on this by following their social stream. I, I watch absolutely no broadcast TV at all. I oh, know me neither. Yeah, so so I haven't actually watched an ANN Seven broadcast since their hilarious since early days no, the when they were compelling viewing. Because what what can, can what can possibly be worse than this? And then something worse happens. But um, yeah, so on the spectrum. Fine, let them be there. No problem with that at all. But um, they were there to fulfil a very, very clear uh, agenda. Yeah, sure. And uh, and if they had done it professionally, it would have been different. 
but they did it amateurishly. Very bad. Yeah, and I feel I feel quite bad for the journalists who were employed by them and by the old new age that's now called Afro Voice. Yeah. Um, you know, working journalists who have standards and and credibility to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the more papers there are, the more platforms there are, the better. But they are competing with free and open platforms in the modern age, and if they don't find something unique to compete on, they won't survive. But there's this, this fallacy of um, objectivity. Yeah. Or am I just being... Oh, yeah, no. No, look, I, mean, I think that's... Uh, I mean, uh, for example, okay, I'm just going to name, for example, the star, mm. ENCA, to some degree. They try to be objective, and that, to me, objective equals bland. Yeah, It's yeah. just... You read it because it's there, not because you have an interest in what's in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why is objectivity still seen as, or is it rather, still yeah. seen as some sort of measurement? Yeah. Of, well, you of know, good I journalism? mean, humans aren't objective creatures, and they, no. and you know, even academic writing is not objective. The, the, um, uh, the academics' personal background, personal kind of context, will be reflected in even the driest academic article. So um, newspapers are popular forms of media and they need to communicate with people on a level where they are accessible and entertaining and informative and also provocative. But journalists are completely and absolutely you know, human, possibly more so than, than other people. Uh, I, I don't think there is such a thing as an objective newspaper and, and there never no. has been. But, but they, try to, they try to portray themselves yeah. as such. And yeah. I think it's just defeating the point. Yeah. So look, objective is a bit different to, to fair. So yes. um, a newspaper should go out of its way to make sure that all views in, in an issue are, are adequately reflected. Mm. And even, it's, even if it's something as simple as, you know, the, the old standby, so-and-so was not available for comment at the time of going to press. Now, at least make an effort sure. to make it seem that you <laughs> went out of your way to speak to this person, give them a right of reply. But um, so the absolute opposite of objectivity is what happened, for instance, with um, with Musi Maimani, where he spoke about, they call me a mini Mandela. Right. And then what was cut out was the crucial part, which is they call me a sellout. Yeah. So I can't remember where that came, where they came from and who first carried it. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. but it was, it was edited. So it was, was the opposite of objectivity. It was, so editing is good, but editing for effect is also bad. Sure. Because if you, if you just show people a, a snippet, um, you are not in any way giving them an objective picture. An objective picture is this is what was said. He has the full clip for you. Make your own mind up. As soon as you start snipping out crucial bits of information, you are deviously and maliciously um, making people think in the way that you want to. Yeah, so that's the opposite. So objectivity doesn't mean that you adopt a completely neutral stance. That's, that, that, that journalists are not dispassionate. They are, in fact, extremely passionate. Uh, when it comes to the issues they cover and the way they cover them. But but you are dispassionate in the sense that you allow for other viewpoints. Uh, yeah, so basis of journalism, a, f- a fundament is that you get the other side. Um, if you don't, then you are simply pushing an agenda. But advocacy journalism is a legitimate field of journalism, as in the journalist has a viewpoint. And the viewpoint might be as simple as all South Africans need access to antiretrovirals. That's not a controversial viewpoint. Sure. But you advocate for that. Sure. You push for that in your well, reporting. Well, like Ivo Vechter, okay, he's a columnist. Yeah. A columnist is different yeah. from 
He's yeah. different from a journalist. Yeah, well, see, um, Ivo is, I think he's a very good researcher and he will go out of his way to, to verify and to reference his viewpoints. Yeah. There's a, uh, an opinion, an opinion uh, columnist who simply, which is a very valuable uh, place in journalism, will simply rant and spew and they're often very entertaining, but they don't have the burden on their shoulders of like, proof and like, of reference. Like uh, Ron Liddell of The Spectator. What's that? Uh, yeah, Liddell. Yeah, I that's mean, right. Hilarious columns. Yeah. You would never get away with it here. That's right. You'll be at the <laughs> Human Rights Commission every second yeah. week. Yeah. But there's no substance. Yeah. Well, someone like fun. Richard Poplack, who I think is a fantastic columnist, you know, he, um, is, you can pretty much call him a gonzo journalist in sure. the sense that... Well, he tries really hard to be a gonzo <laughs> journalist. Yeah. yeah, but he he's not under the burden of uh, of having to reference things and prove things. He can he can use metaphor and he I can know. use I insult. Mean, he, he, made a, he uh, wrote a book review without reading the book. <laughs> that's my allegation. <laughs> oh, well, that is, unfortunately, that's quite commonplace, though. Um, <laughs> Richard, if you're honest... You know, as, long as, as long as you read yeah. back the book and you flip through it... And you yeah. Yeah, so he wrote a whole book review. I'm like, I read this book, and I don't remember seeing any of that in it. Nevertheless, um, yeah. so I actually had another question. So, I mean, so do you think what are the incentive structures for good journalism these days? Because no one wants to yeah. buy the bloody paper anymore. No one wants to pay for information yeah. anymore. So, what incentive is there yeah. to be fair yeah. and uh, a good journalist? Yeah. Is there an incentive? Well, there's one huge incentive, which is that it's a human incentive, and there's ego. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, if you take away everything from a journalist, and you take away their money, and you take away their platform, and you take away their job, you can't take away their ego. And, they, <laughs> and, and ego is the need to be heard. Yeah. It's a fundamental human need. Uh, journalists have a platform, and the days are gone when they control that platform. But, um, but journalists still very much... Um, as long as they have a place where they can air their views, they will still be journalists. The, the financial incentive is a very famous um, essay that that comes up in journalism schools every now and again. That's where I first came across it. It's by a professor called Robert Picard, and he did a speech at Oxford, and he subsequently wrote um, the equivalent of it, and it's called Journalists Deserve Low Pay. And his entire thesis is that journalists actually in the modern age don't add anything to society because um, of social media is one of the key reasons. But he also says that journalism isn't like other professions that inherently add value, like woodworking and brain surgery. Right. And unlike, so unlike marketers yeah. and things like that. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So what he's saying, and it's provocative, he's a journalism professor, but he's actually saying is if you want to, if you want to actually have the incentive to get higher pay, you better start adding higher value. So journalism that adds value in the sense of being multimedia – i.e. you read a story and there's a little explainer on the side like Knife does and um, and there's a video and there's a little YouTube um, to camera bit, there's a podcast maybe. All of those things add enormous value. But the days when you could simply report on the news that happened yesterday, that adds absolutely no value at all, I'm afraid. So yeah. so that sort of journalism is, I think it's actually, it will never die out completely. But it is, you look at it and you think there's zero value in it. The, the, the usefulness has, has, yeah. is not, yeah, I would say, I would, not that useful anymore. I would say, like, ironically, one of, one of his usefulnesses is that sometimes people actually need to relax and read a paper. This is why, where do we get papers these days? Coffee shops and sure. airports. Yeah. <laughs> so you go to the airport, you pick up the free papers, 
and uh, you go to a coffee shop, sit down, and there's the papers. Uh, and the value that you're getting from it is the this, this sense of retreating to a, a gentler age when you could actually indulge. But even so, if you follow, if you use social media at all, nothing in the paper, very little of it will be new to you. Well, especially when the journalists who wrote the piece tweets about the, the wherever the conference yeah. they are at yeah. the day before. There's a whole stream on what people say at the conference, and then they write about it for the yeah. paper no, it tomorrow. Actually, what, it what's the point? It actually maddens me, and it's one of the things we agree with, that journalists deserve low pay, is where a journalist simply says, a storm broke out on Twitter yesterday over X, Y, Z, and then embedded tweet, embedded tweet, embedded tweet. I think one glaring area of omission in our journalistic society is why don't we have social media critics? We have art critics, we have movie critics, we have sports writers. Why does nobody take social media seriously as a form? And why does nobody, like, once a week, um, there are obvious reasons for that, no one will pay for it, yeah. but it's a legitimate form of uh, of expression, and somebody should actually arbitrate it and say, this week on Twitter, so-and-so was really good. This week on Facebook, there was a great post about and. Be a cultural analyst. That's a analyst. very good idea, actually. That's <laughs> yeah. a very good idea. Yeah. As opposed to simply, because you know, everyone's on social media. I mean, it's, sure. like, it's universal. If you're not on social media, it'll enter your field by osmosis. So it's very pointless to to embed a series of tweets, give it a headline and an opening paragraph, and call that journalism. Yeah. Those journalists okay. actually, you know, I don't think they deserve pay at all. <laughs> yeah. On that point, someone yeah. did copy and paste a full article and put it on, on Facebook. Uh, a friend of mine, and he got yeah. a he got an email from the star, whoever yeah. it was. He said, "Oh, this is our content." He's like, "Listen, you steal my tweets every second week without permission." Yeah. So, <laughs> screw you. Yeah, anything. No, yeah, it's important to note to note this. Anything you put out on the internet, anything that is copyable and pasteable, you can't complain when people copy and paste it. it does I think not there's to a you. there's a nice little moral <coughs> kind of quirk, really, as in it'd be nice if you gave us a credit. Yeah, so this article appeared in the start, yes. and it's by so-and-so. Do that because it's like it's a nice thing to do. But don't complain when people use the content. In fact, what you should actually do is, thanks so much. We're so pleased. Thank you for posting this. We love you. I mean, that's, that's what, what I do, do with the podcast, right? Yeah. I, I happen to be on Reddit or something, and then I see I type in yeah. Verity or yeah. Renegade reports. I'm like, I listen yeah. to people say, oh, wow, it was posted here three weeks ago. Yeah. I no idea. And you see the comments, like, oh, you know, thank you. <laughs> thank you for more exposure. Yeah. These people are giving you free exposure. Yeah. First of all, they're engaging with your content, mm-hmm. to use, the, to use the, the buzz terms. And secondly, they're going to all the trouble of sharing it. You should fall down in gratitude, man, because no one's reading the paper. No. So, so very few people are taking the trouble to read the paper, and those who read it online and choose to share it should be celebrated. So, guys, I mean, last last little yeah. bit from my side. I think you should do mm. a podcast. <laughs> well, I think it, you'll be great at it. Not not interview. I think you should tell yeah. stories. Yeah. Well, you know, look, it's one of the challenges of the world we live in that there's so much information and there's so many platforms of expression and I have thought about it a lot okay. uh, one oh, thing good. I thought that would be cool um, and I don't know if anyone has done this but I thought I th- you know, have a sort of walk and talk podcast something about walking opens up frees the mind uh, I suppose technically it would be a bit difficult but the idea of walking with somebody while talking and then yeah, podcasting that I think would be but even, even in a narrative hmm. form podcast yeah. like uh, you, you I know you very much into yeah. podcasts generally, yeah. but like a, a shit town, I'm sure you've heard of <laughs> yeah. shit town or serial or yeah. things like that. We tell a story over yeah. 10 hours, basically yeah. an audio book. That's right. Uh, but that a real is, story. I think that's in South Africa, yeah. 
we would have so many of those stories yeah. to tell. Yeah. But it takes money, effort, and people don't know podcasts very well yet. Absolutely. Look, I think there's always a technical obstacle to whatever platform you want to use. Um, podcasting more so because you can get away with almost anything on other platforms, but on podcasting you can't get away with poor sound. Indeed. So you need to have quality microphone. You need to know, uh, can you use a smartphone, for instance? Is it feasible to do a podcast with your smartphone? So the technical obstacles are like, they're obstacles that can be overcome, but they might require some thinking and some kind of uh, know-how and some money <laughs> as well. Sure. No, yeah. but I think it would be a great production. Instead of yeah. having a visual documentary, just have yeah. a... Have a and I think you have the voice for it. Yeah. Well, the fantastic thing is that even in this world we live in, with all its modern uh, innovations, there's still a room for radio. Effectively, this Absolutely. medium goes back to like the 1920s. You know, Marconi would be amazed to see people still using microphones and still doing shows. But even relaying information yeah. by sound is the oldest form of communication. Right. Yeah. Not the written word. Absolutely. Not uh, anything else. It's, uh, it's uh, audio. Yeah. It's, it's sound. Yeah. And so why, really, wouldn't it, why wouldn't it continue? Yeah. To sum up, I mean, you know, that's, that's what's fantastic. And that's what this democracy of, of creative platforms means that you can do something that actually like is very old fashioned and make it new again. Um, you don't have to only use the new stuff, YouTube and, uh, and data journalism and all the stuff that people get very excited about. You can go back to the old, old platforms and make them feel new. That's really exciting. And it's the best time to do it. Mr. Gus Silber, thank you, sir. What a thank pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. I don't know how long it's been, but what a pleasure to Good have chatting. you. Good chatting. Thanks Thank so you much. so much. Thank you.